The following Talking Space episode was recorded at the end of 2020. However, due to unforeseen circumstances, it has been unable to be released until now. We still think you'll enjoy our takes on the space news of the end of 2020, as well as some fantastic launch audio and even some landing audio. So please enjoy this episode of Talking Space, recorded December 2020. One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1207 for the week of Christmas week. That is Monday, December 21st, 2020. I'm Zoe Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Thank you very much, Sawyer. Happy to be yeah. here. <laughs> Glad to have you. Welcome as well, Mark Radiman. It's good to be here. I've been looking forward to this since we first started planning. Thank you for pulling it all together, guys. Absolutely. And Cat uh, Robinson is unable to join us tonight uh, due to personal issues, but we wish Dr. Cat Robinson all of the best. Yeah, I was looking forward to congratulating her on, on in person here. Well, at least as in person as we can through Skype on on her uh, her grand accomplishment and and being awarded her doctorate uh, this past week. So, Cat, if you're listening, hope you are. Congratulations. Yes, and we will do a full congratulations and talk about her dissertation in an upcoming episode for sure because it's really an interesting topic. Oh, I can't wait for that one. But in the meantime, we have a lot of our own interesting topics here to cover tonight, so let's jump right into it, and uh, we'll start with a launch roundup, and we'll begin with the launches that Talking Space was there for. And yes, despite the pandemic, Talking Space, as in myself, have been going to some of these launches. Uh, for the most part, honestly, it's the only place that I actually go out of the house with the COVID-19 pandemic <laughs> as this is being recorded, uh, because most of the places I go are very good about keeping social distancing of the two meters slash six feet. And in some places it is even three meters or closer to 10 feet. Um, so we will begin though with the first one, uh, which was the first ever launch of the new Cargo Dragon to the International Space Station, which uses essentially the same body as the Crew Dragon. Uh, however, it does not have the emergency escape system and obviously doesn't have all the seats and things and instead has room for storage for supplies. This successfully launched on December 6th, 2020, and then docked uh, just about a day after. And for the first time ever at this moment, 
two Dragon capsules are currently docked to the International Space Station. And also of importance, this mission was not birthed to the International Space Station as all others were, meaning it kind of stopped itself just shy of the space station and then someone used the robot arm to grab it and made it to the space station. This was a fully automated docking of the Cargo Dragon. Yeah, and another thing, uh, too, Sawyer, uh, this Cargo Dragon is carrying a commercial airlock that was just recently attached to the International Space Station by uh, by NanoRacks. Uh, this, is, this is really, really something exciting. It's going to be able to hold uh, additional experimentation for the facility and will give the facility some additional options. I believe, too, they've been using the uh, airlock for experimentation on the Japanese module, the Kibo module, and this particular uh, uh, addition on the International Space Station is really, really going to go ahead and help out uh, additional research there. So congratulations to NanoRacks for getting their uh, their airlock fully deployed on to the International Space Station. Yeah, as it is right now, there's essentially the GEM module attached to uh, the Kibo module, which is kind of like for experiments, which does have its own mini airlock and its own cannon arm on it. But uh, yeah, yep. this is, that's called Dexter, but this is uh, its own airlock for that, which is really great. And this one's also a shorter duration mission, it seems like, compared to other Dragon capsules. I mean, this thing's going to be up here, I believe, less than a month in total time. Yeah, I think I, I thought I, I I stand corrected. Then I th- thought I uh, I I read uh, thirty five days, but um, either way, either it, way, that's still a lot it, shorter than normal. Yeah, I agree with you, Sawyer. It is kind of short for uh, for a dragon stay, um, and then because then you got to go ahead, you got to unload load the spacecraft, load and then load it up with all the stuff that's going to go home. Uh, we also have a Cygnus departure coming up. I think uh either this month or later next month too uh the ss uh, kalpana chala is uh departing the international space station as well a lot of traffic on the iss these days a lot of it and it kind of uh it, you know it, it's a nice problem for uh, somebody like joel montabano who runs the uh, international space station for uh, for nasa to have because this is exactly the kind of facility that was envisioned when the when when the uh, uh, the uh, the mission started. So uh, con- again, uh, a busy place. The ISS is going to be like Grand Central Station for a little bit, but uh, gosh darn it, it's a nice problem to have. Exactly, and it does help when you have more people to handle all that extra traffic in the form of seven as a result of one Soyuz and one Crew Dragon. Yeah, exactly, and I think we talked about this last last time where you have an additional uh, set of hands on the International Space Station now uh, with that, uh, that seventh crew member, and that really should accelerate your science investigations, uh, I don't know how many fold. Um, so we're going to be getting more science out of out of the uh, ISS. There'll be more opportunity um, for experimentation. There'll be more time time for that as uh, things get a little bit more automated up there. Um, just a really really grand time for uh, 
for the ISS at this point. So um, also, too, and I think I read this in TASS uh, earlier uh, before coming on, that apparently, too, that the uh, the leak that has been plaguing the, the Russian side has been solved. So, um, again, things are stacking up quite nicely up there, and uh, uh, hope that trend continues. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's again, it's exciting to have so much to report on on the space station. And that's not even talking about any of the science that's being done. We're just talking about the comings and goings of vehicles at the moment. Yeah, I mean, even uh, you, you mentioned the science. I believe um, it was uh, Kenny Todd at one of the briefings uh, basically said that uh, – uh, he was asked about the any Christmas presents going up to, for the uh, for the crew, and uh, he said you know, something to the effect that uh, you know Kate Rubens looks at uh, is going to look at the Cygnus uh, or look at the uh, the Dragon that's coming up um, as one big Christmas present because there's just going to be so many quote toys close quote in there to play with as far mm-hmm. as si- as far as science investigations are concerned so uh the uh the cargo dragon is really going to be keeping that that crew busy oh it really is and uh well <laughs> i know we talk about being there for and that means we have to have launch sound right Oh, of course. Of course. We absolutely do. Now, this one seemed very unique. Again, besides being the first uh, version, besides being the first new version of Cargo Dragon to fly, the second iteration of the commercial resupply program. Uh, It also is the first NASA mission to launch on a previously flown booster. And this mission, I don't know if it's just because of the aerodynamics of the new cargo dragon and the fins on the trunk area or what but when this thing launched it went up for a little bit and then did a hard sharp turn and it went in such a strange looking direction from you know seeing it so many times of seeing a bunch of regular first crs missions I don't know if it was just me, but that thing turned and it turned hard. And uh, I viewed this from a public area and all of us, you know, who were there, mostly space geese, were thinking the same thing. As in, as in, are we having a bad day or? (laughs) Well, at first it was like, wow, that's a sharp turn. Is that wrong? And then we realized, no, it's, it's right. And wondering if that's possibly just a feature of the upgraded cargo dragon and its ascent and its path to the space station maybe that's something you may want to ask next time you know if you're ever privy to uh to a post-launch press conference maybe that might be a good question to ask of uh of the uh the spacex folks well we'll have to see uh, given everything going on with covid but yes yeah in the meantime, though, you'll hear that reaction uh, and in the reaction in general from the public. So this was recorded uh, on that morning of launch. This was from uh, Cape Canaveral National Seashores, which is Playa Linda Beach area at one of the uh, pull-offs that they have there. And it's mixed in with the general public. So you will hear some space geeks and some non-space geeks natural reaction and uh, if you do hear a dip in the audio, it is not your headphones. It is that we can keep keep our clean rating on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts slash Google Play slash slash all of those. There were definitely some expletives. So uh, the good news is it doesn't disrupt the sound. So go ahead, take a listen. You'll be able to tell when it lifts off. 
and enjoy. Now, last time, Gene, when we had the Crew 1 sound, I remember we were saying that's probably one of the best sounds that we've had for Talking Space. I think this is probably the longest sound that we've had for Talking Space. In fact, as we're talking, you probably still hear a little bit of the rumbling underneath our voice. But, I mean, that thing went on for at least three minutes and you could hear it. We're talking, it almost sounded like you could hear a little bit of the second stage with how long that went. Yeah, Sawyer, that's that's probably one of your, your better uh, captures there, as far as audio is concerned. And uh, um, I, again, I'm I'm really curious. I'm still thinking about about the directions and 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 that you were describing earlier. And I'm I'm trying to to get that squared away in my head, and I'm also trying to think about reasons. While while we were off listening to the. Um, uh, the launch, and by the way, thank you for taking out the expletives. I really do appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, while we were sitting out there, I was still trying to figure out picture picturing that in my head as far as how how the the spacecraft trail uh, worked and why that was uh, as far as uh, the whole the whole approach. But congratulations, that was really a grand piece of audio. Thank you uh, for outside of the recording here. I just sent you a picture of the arc just for how soon it turned. How often do you see a vertical shot of the launch pad like that with the rocket already turning? Wow. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's <laughs> so for all the listeners here, I, I'm sharing a picture now that will also be in the show notes uh, with Mark and Gene here just to see that how sharp of a turn it is. It is a single frame like you'd normally see of the launch going up as we've shot before, but it's already turning in that, in that frame. That is just amazing. That's what I mean. It's one of the quickest turns. And that's, yeah, a, that's that a is, good, that's insane. <laughs> so that's, that's why you hear us going, wow, look at the thing turn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this photograph and it, yes, we will put this into the show notes. So we're again, congratulations, good capture on the photo. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really curious as to as to how why the track moved as drastically as it did, and that's exactly. that's a good illustration. If anybody thinks, well, a rocket's a rocket, why would you be concerned about trying to see all these launches? There's a lot of them that are similar, but there's some different ones that really get your attention. Sometimes even the weather itself can make it interesting. Yeah, there's always some nuance to every single one of these things. And uh, Sawyer, again, I have to say thanks for being our uh, our eyes and ears out there for uh, for being at uh, at one of these launches under under these circumstances. 
it gets me out of the house and I get to see a rocket launch. That's the best of both worlds. So Indeed. it's not a problem. And yeah, this one, it was so clear. And I mean, at one point I actually got to see the vapor cone around the rocket, which is when the air, essentially the air pressure changes between the top and the bottom of the rocket and it forms a cloud. You may have seen it in pictures what are supposedly illustrating breaking the sound barrier, but it's actually not. It's just a vapor cone as it's still subsonic. Yeah. So. Incredible capture, sir. Thank you. Yeah. And Mark, thank you for pointing out the different nuances. Because, I mean, one of, yes, there's a lot of Falcon 9 launches, and that one was very different from them. And then, of course, there's always the Delta IV Heavy, which is different from all of the rest. And, uh, yes, here we are four months later, and we're still talking about NROL 44 for the National Reconnaissance Office. But we can finally finish our conversation on it because the mission finally launched. The Delta IV Heavy carrying the clandestine satellite for the National Reconnaissance Office took off a few a short time later, actually, December 10th at uh, 8.09 p.m. Eastern Time after a short delay from earlier in the day just because they got a little bit behind while they were getting everything ready. But, uh, man, there are, if I'm correct, I believe there are only... Uh, five more launches left of the Delta IV Heavy before it's phased out in favor of Vulcan. Yeah, and that's a darn shame, too. I'm going to miss that bird. That that bird is just magnificent as uh, as she takes off. And in all honesty, to, to just kind of put the story straight as to what the delay was all about, that was indeed nothing to do with the launch vehicle, but I believe it was a piece of ground uh, servicing equipment that just was just really giving them a a big pain in the you know the hind quarters and in, in trying to psych it out and uh lo and behold they were able to go ahead and, and replace everything and and uh and get the the vehicle off and going um hasn't that been the whole story of nrl 44 anyway it scrubbed in august because of a uh ground support issue september because of a ground support issue yeah but you know i, I i'm I, I'm not all that certain as far as what the age of a lot of the stuff is over at Launch Complex 37. I know there is no, I know um, Vulcan will essentially launch from uh, Launch Complex uh, 41 once they start uh, going. So I, I think the fun, I don't know whether, whether or not there will be any launches after Delta Four Heavy. Um, uh, you know, is deactivated. I think that launch pad too is going to be deactivated. So they probably don't want to go ahead and spend, you know, the, a, a ton of money on on it. But they also want to make sure that it's still safe to fly out of. So I, I think mean, that, they replaced an entire swing arm on the. <laughs> yeah, I know. So so they're 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 really trying to strike a a good balance between launch safety and you know not you know spending a ton of probably not spending a ton of money on trying to to keep the facility going so um yeah. uh it, it's kind of a fine line because eventually i believe uh, launch complex 37 is going to probably be be deactivated uh, yeah the first one really in modern day to be deactivated mm-hmm and i mean it's that rocket by the way in terms of how long that took it was uh basically assembled essentially in uh I believe January 2019 or um, November of uh, 2019 mm-hmm. and finally launched December of 2020. Well, 
you know, I mean, um, again, it it just it just kind of dictates the longevity of the launch vehicle, and and they uh, they they build these things tough. Um, over yeah, and at there's a lot of and there's a lot of people who were still asking, well, why don't you just launch it on SpaceX? They'll actually get it off on time. And oh. I know we've talked about all of this before. Is that a, it was the only vehicle capable of carrying this satellite or satellites, whatever it may have been. Again, it's clandestine, so we don't actually get to know. And uh, besides that, it's they still have a 100% safety record on their rocket. Not to say that SpaceX doesn't have a great safety record, which they do, but as of now, ULA's is 100%. Well, it's it's not even that too. I'm not too sure what the payload is and and what its requirements are, but it's something obviously that a Falcon 9 can't handle. And I don't know how many uh, planned launches they have of the uh, of Falcon Heavy uh, of late. Again, so, my understanding is that it was the only rocket that had a payload fairing large enough to actually hold it. Right, and I believe too that's also. Part of the the reason why I think ULA is is, is still contracted out to uh, to deal with a lot of Defense Department uh, requirements because of that that larger fairing that they're able to go ahead and support. Yeah, it's pretty. You know, it's split. Both SpaceX and ULA have contracts. Right. So. Right, and that's 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 a that's a whole story for another day. I know a lot of people, a lot of uh, other companies were kind of left out in the cold um, with that. Uh, I know uh, New Glenn was kind of left out in the cold a little bit, but I believe recently they, I think they have been saved. Um, uh, I think NASA is is planning on using New Glenn for a couple of things. Um, so, uh, Blue Origin in that instance has been saved. However, um, the other launch vehicle, uh, that, uh, Northrop Grumman had planned, the Omega, I think that's pretty much a done deal. Hey, another, uh, launch comment living in Lake City, Florida. I'm about 160 plus miles or so from Cape Canaveral and, uh, we had good weather and went outside, and uh, even though I had looked at a chart that showed that the launch was not going to be viewable from my location because of distance, went outside and looked anyway and did see it from about four to six minutes into flight. Uh, wow. Actually would have seen it sooner if we didn't have trees to the southeast blocking our view, and uh, I think we saw it up through... Uh, uh, staging booster engine cutout and then second stage, uh, which when we that's when we lost it. But uh, yeah, wow, it's worth worth walking outside. Wow, I gotta move. <laughs> that's all there Come is on down, that. Gene. We're more than happy to welcome you here. I got I gotta move. It, it, it's just that simple. I mean, I got wallops though. I mean, I could see those guys from my my uh, my driveway. Yeah, if you live somewhere where you can go outside and see a launch, do it. Trust us. Don't second guess it. Doesn't matter how cold it is. As long as it's a clear sky, do it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, this one, same thing, even in person from the ITL Causeway, which is, I believe, about two and a half ish miles away from the launch pad. Uh, 
we could still, I mean, see it all the way up through booster engine cutoff as well. And, you know, I saw the side boosters separate, basically. And then you can see the main booster shut down and a little bit of uh, the Centaur upper stage burning as well. And yeah, Gene, when you and I saw uh, Parker Solar Probe, I believe that was from the NASA Causeway, right? That's correct. For those that know the area, the NASA Causeway is about, what, a mile, a mile and a half-ish farther back? That Yeah, that that's absolutely correct. I believe that's like, what, three, four miles? I think it's like three or four miles away. Yeah, this is from the ITL. Unfortunately, my audio recorder did not actually record during this. However, uh, I was taking video with my phone, which does honestly do pretty good sound i do believe so if you were to go and record a delta 4 heavy launch with your cell phone from about two miles away this is what it would sound like One thing I have to say about that is this was probably the first time in a long time that I've actually felt a rumble. Probably the last time was one of the early Block 5 Falcon 9s on a first flight. Those Mm -hmm. will shake you. But this one, I mean, felt my clothes rattling. It is the last time that I really felt that besides the SpaceX launch was Shuttle. I don't know. I, I thought um, EFT one gave us a good rattle, um, but I could be. I you know again I, that that I thought was the last time I kind of felt something, and and uh, I think Parker Solar Probe also. You kind of got your your chest smacked pretty darn good, but I think it also had something to do with you know the way the wind was blowing that day and and all of that yeah. too, as far as how the sound travels and what direction it travels in. And I think part of it, honestly, is uh, having, you know, seen so many launches recently. <clears throat> you know, the <laughs> Parker Solar Probe was about two years ago now. I remember that one being more the loudest launch I've heard, but didn't yes. really feel it as much. That one, it basically sucked out anything else that was trying to make any sound in the air. Yeah, that one was, was rather spectacular. That was, again, the... I didn't feel as much vibration, but that was by far to this day still the loudest launch I've ever heard. This one, you really felt the rumble. And again, part of that was there was not a single cloud in the sky, zero. You could see every star. Uh, there was minimal to no wind right on the waterfront about oh, two miles away. This sounds, so, this sounds like just absolutely exquisite. Yeah. So, I mean, that's – and that's what the – a cell phone, that audio, just keep that in mind. So, <laughs> uh, and then the other one that we will mention, uh, was the last launch from Florida for 2020. And that was NROL 108, 
Should mention also in there, there was a launch for Sirius XM, the Sirius XM7 launch. That launched successfully as well from Space Launch Complex 40 and then landed a booster for the seventh time again. That's two boosters now that have flown seven missions. That one landing on a barge, coming back a little crooked, but still flyable. And then I actually got to go buy it on a boat for, as I was mentioning, the final SpaceX launch of the year from Florida, which was Saturday, December 19th. And that launched just after 9 a.m. by about a couple seconds uh, at the start of a three-hour launch window. That mission going from Space Launch Complex, that mission going from Launch Complex 39A, and was also a landing zone one RTLS return to launch site landing. Yeah, that one too. I think had a couple of. Del- I might be getting my my uh, my my flights crossed, but I thought that one too had a had a little bit of a weather delay or or some sort well, of delay. That got delayed the first time because yeah. of an issue with the second stage that they wanted to take a look at. It got delayed ah. by an hour or two for weather. Then, as they got down within two minutes of the final count, they wanted to double check a reading on the second stage. So they gave that two more days, Thursday, Friday, and then came back Saturday. And went ahead with the launch. Yeah. So, you know, for my friends who uh, like to badger certain launch providers for delays, you know, um, it, <laughs> it's 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 always good to err on the side of caution because you, you do want to go ahead and satisfy your customer, whoever that, that may be, whether it be... Um, you know, the, the U.S. military or the uh, National Reconnaissance Office or... Um, you know, some sort of satellite provider, you always want to make sure that, that you get the bird in the air, that the, the, the delays are are inconsequential compared to, um, you know, losing a mission potentially. So you want to make sure all your I's dotted and T's are crossed. And believe me, both of these launch services providers do that. And, and they're not going to go ahead and, you know, you know, do a launch commit just to you know, satisfy their fan base. They're going to go ahead and do a launch commit when they feel that like they're going to go ahead and feel they're ready to launch. Exactly. And I do like this mission, by the way. The mascot was a gorilla because it's a very (laughs) friendly and docile animal. But if provoked, it will attack. That was the logic. (laughs) I, you know, I love the National Reconnaissance Office and some of their their mission insignias. They, They get very, very creative and very, very uh, artistic, if you will. We've had everything from Spike the Lizard to, um, you know, Eagles to uh, Lewis and Clark to, to now the, a, a, a gorilla. I mean, if you go back through the, the history of some of the NROL um, launch insignias, wow. They're, and they, they kind of give you a little bit of it. They might give you a little bit of a hint as to what the, the, the spacecraft was all about, maybe. But they're still <laughs> real, they're still really fun to take a look at. So if you ever really have a chance, somebody really ought to get a book together and, 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 and collect all of these in one place. They really are kind of cool. Oh, yeah, it's really unique. And speaking of unique, the way I got to see this launch was also unique because otherwise, like Mark was mentioning, it's kind of just another launch for this one. Minus the return to landing site, which is always amazing. And so I got the opportunity to see this one from a boat. 
So this was on the Banana River. It was about 10 miles away from the launch pad and about three miles away from landing zone one, which that was my goal for this one. I've seen two dozen launches or so. I really wanted to see a very good close up of a LZ-1 landing. And I got to see it. Unfortunately, I don't really have good launch audio because it was on a boat and there's a boat engine and waves. And also from 10 miles away, you don't get as rich and hearty of a sound as we normally would from, say, two, three, four miles away. Uh, However, a sonic boom still startled me. And this is actually what the landing sounded like. And the landing sound, which, in my opinion, was louder from where we were than the launch sound. So, I mean, again, you hear those engines roar as it comes into land. The sonic boom as part of it breaks the sound barrier, which I remember years ago it used to be three. It seems like it's only two now, but regardless, it's still touched down safely. Only, you know, about three miles away. It was great. And uh, I do have to give a a little shout out here. Uh, Let me make sure I get their name right. I do have to give a little shout out here to uh, Starfleet Tours. I am not sponsored. We are not sponsored by them in any way, shape, or form. I actually went out there and paid for this trip myself with my own money, not anything from Talking Space, and really, really enjoyed it. It was a great time. They got us really close to the landing there, good group of people, and it was safe and social distanced and everyone was wearing masks. So a huge shout out. If you ever are looking for a very unique experience, especially for a booster landing, I would absolutely check them out. It sounds like that uh, once I'm able to travel again and uh, we get this, uh, you know, this bug under control, I may have to, uh, we, all, you know, the whole crew might have to go ahead and, and book a book a, uh, a visit out uh out in, in that boat and take a take a see uh, take a look at uh, one of these launches from uh, from that vantage point because it really sounds interesting. That's one of the things I've been wanting to do in association with one of the Wallops launches because I know there are several uh, boating uh, outfits that uh, in the uh, Chincoteague area that go ahead and um, are, are able to uh, to go ahead and take you out there and. Uh, um, one of these days I'll have to try that for Antares. And, but um, Sawyer, Mark, Cat, uh, if you're listening, one of these days we ought to see if uh, we can get the whole crew. Um, it would be kind of nice to, to go out there and, and enjoy a, a launch from that vantage point. Just rent out the whole boat for all of us, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Mark, you in? Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, Sawyer, and I heard you say you got money, so uh, <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> Where are we going for lunch? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, we got fish slips, we got grills all right along there. <laughs> oh, boy. But, yeah, so it was great. We also got to, you know, float by the um, – they had just lowered the Sirius XM booster flat. Uh, for NRL 44, by the way, I got to see the CRS-21 booster a couple days after launch. So I got to see the same booster for launch and then 
back on land after landing. And then again, technically with NRL 108, I got to see it launch and then back on land for landing, except just eight minutes later instead of four days. Uh, but that was a unique way to end uh, to end the year. And uh, that was uh, SpaceX's 26th launch of the year, by the way. They obviously have the lead in terms of all the launch providers uh, in the U.S., yeah, they. Um, I believe uh, we're not done yet with launches. I believe uh, China just uh, initially launched their um, Long March 8. Uh, there is going to be a Soyuz launch um, through around space uh, the end of the month, and there might be one more launch from China uh, coming up. Uh, toward the end of the year too, so uh, just you know, be on the lookout for those. Oh, absolutely. And uh, oh yeah, there was one more launch that we didn't necessarily get to talk about that happened in the same kind of time period, and that was Wednesday, December 9th, when vehicle serial number eight, better known as Starship SN8. <laughs> took off from Boca Chica, Texas, uh, from the SpaceX facility there, the vehicle launching all the way up to about 12 and a half kilometers before then going horizontal to slow itself down, returning vertical again, and just as it was about to make a landing, unfortunately the end, there was a fuel flow issue and uh, it did not do a complete successful landing as opposed to a, uh, a rud, a rapidly unscheduled uh destruction <laughs> yeah that, that i was gonna say um that that is that that's a pretty way of saying it went boom um there was really you know pretty much the, what was left was a bunch of twisted molten metal stuff that was lying on the ground um i get from an engineering standpoint i will give them a tip of the hat uh if if the idea was to gather data and trying to figure out what you got um, they sure got that in spades, and that's sometimes the only way you're going to understand exactly what you have is if you fly. Um, a, a few things may or may not have gone wrong on that. I know everybody, uh, including you know a lot of our competitors, were just you know yelling and screaming, "Oh wow, this was great! This is like the weirdest, coolest thing I've ever seen in my life!" Blah blah blah. The whole idea about the day was to go ahead and gather data and flight data, um, which they are, and they're going to go ahead and probably apply it to um, SN9, which I think is coming up at some point. Um, it's it's already out on the uh, launch stand as they've just finished getting the right. last Raptor engine on, and well, that was after straightening it when it fell over in the uh, in the processing building, but still. Yeah, well, you know, we're not, I'm not going to go there. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea about that day was to go ahead and gather flight data, and they got that in spades. Um, the engineers will tell you getting the vehicle, getting a test vehicle back would be gravy and all that. Um, but I think, too, the, the idea um, was that it just about drowned everything out, um, even though that... Um, the end result was a was a spectacular uh, explosion. It was still heralded as as this um, uh, 
this new, uh, this beginning of a new era in space flight. And I sat there and I'm like, well, okay, fine. Uh, you got your data. Congratulations. So in that respect, hey, mission accomplished, and you, 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 the mission is a success. But from a um, from a standpoint of trying to get the vehicle back, uh, I think you fell a little short. And if that was the idea to try to get the vehicle back, then oh well, um, I think you failed. Uh, so what you, you got to do from this point is to see what went wrong with that SN8. And try to incorporate the uh, that into the into the next test vehicle, and I'm getting my fingers crossed that they have. But um, see, I think that's why it's being considered a success. I mean, Elon flat out said that he thinks there's only a one in three chance that, that vehicle is coming back landing in one piece, which he was right on the sixty six percent. It did not come yeah. back in one piece, but I think that's why it's getting such acclaim. Is first off. The fact that it went as high as it did, despite it looks like the engines flickering in and out. The the amazing part, I think, was the re-entry, the re-angling of the fins to allow itself to basically do a shuttle-style mock re-entry, landing on its belly to slow down, but then being able to re-go vertical again. I think that was the main thing with this test flight, to prove that it can do that re-entry maneuver successfully, which it did. And now I think the real test, the real thing that I think will make SN8 a success is a landing on SN9. Because if so, then they've proven three quarters of the concepts, basically. Launch, flipping, re-going back to vertical. That fourth part, the sticking the landing, is the one thing missing. And I'm pretty sure if they stick the landing on SN9 or even SN10, then SN8 will be a success. Yeah, I mean, you, you could actually, if you, if you play back the uh, the video from it, you can actually see the, the vernier thrusters kind of burning, you know, and and moving the spacecraft in place. And I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, they were actually still using the the the, the thrusters within the atmosphere and trying to, to, to right the ship, so to speak, and, and get it, it get it at least into position to attempt a landing. So, um, in, in, again, it, it, success, I'll, you guys be the judge, but um, it, as far as I'm concerned, they got their engineering data, and, and that was that was really critical but what was really it, it, it's kind of interesting though because I was thinking back I was watching this and I was thinking all the way back and Sawyer Mark this is going to bring us really all the way back to um, Ares 1X and they too had their own little problems while in flight and so on and those were, were really really kind of overinflated. this thing also had its issues here and there there was some i believe if you take a look at the video um there was a little bit of uh, uh some scorching going on inside the engine chamber uh where where the three uh, raptor engines were there was some you know there was a there was a, a little bit of a fire there that that I, I didn't like and that was probably something that would uh, need to be addressed but uh um you know, there there was no complaints about this, um, but yet, and it and it ended in a in a spectacular ball of fire. Um, but everybody is going, yay, yay, yay! You know, this was great. You know, this was fantastic. New new era and all that. Um, Ares One X, even though there were, were some issues, 
everybody's like, oh boy, this isn't going to work and all this, you know. And, and I'm like, guys, either way, you learn something today, you know. Um, and and it, it, it's just a, a, a juxtaposition between when NASA tries something and things don't exactly go to plan. Um, everybody gets kind of in their face. And yet when SpaceX does something and it doesn't exactly go to plan, a.k.a. SN8, where you had the landing attempt go a little awry um, with, you know, loss of vehicle. I'd say that was a little bit more than awry. Um, it just seems to me that, you know, and then that, that gets heralded. So to me, there's... So, you know, by by either Twitter or the or or mainstream media or something like that, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, why the double standard? Somebody needs to explain that to me. As I I don't have an answer for that. I I get what you're saying now. I mean, it's still I still consider it a mostly successful mission. But I see what you're saying now when you compare it to Ares One X. Yeah, I mean, I mean they they were both. Test flights, purely that. Even you know, even I, I'm I'm thinking all the way back to Antares, the Antares uh, A1 mission, and we didn't know what the devil to expect that day. Um, so, uh, and and to be honest, you know, a lot of people at Orbital Sciences had their fingers crossed and and making sure you know really really you know holding on to their 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 seats and making sure that uh, everything went well and lo and behold on that day in april um everything did go well um but uh um yeah you know it it, it just seems to me that there is a a kind of weird double standard nasa tries something it doesn't go exactly right, and the news media and Twitter look at it and go, "Well, you know, this was supposed to happen on that one, and it and it didn't." You know, you know, and they'll they'll, they'll point the the ugly light will come out, and you know, a lot of other things. And I'm also thinking too of the Northrop Grumman test flight for or the test uh, um, for the. Um, the Omega, the 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 uh, uh, other solid rocket booster that they were going to use for Omega, there was a little bit of a nonconformity toward the end where the uh, the engine nozzle uh, toward the end of the booster kind of you know went boom, and we later learned that it was not the engine nozzle that they were going to use um, for. Uh, that particular vehicle going forward, it was just something that they threw on there, and sure enough, you know, it didn't it, it didn't withstand um, the uh, the uh, the problems that, uh, uh, or should I say, it didn't withstand the uh, um, the uh, uh, blast that the uh, SRB was putting out. So it kind of disintegrated a little bit, and and everybody poo pooed that rather loudly. Um, and there was a press conference afterward, and I believe there were some questions about it. And that's where we learned, too, that they weren't using the, the nozzle that they were, really should be using, but they're still going to look into it and figure out what, what went wrong. Um, that really got blown out of proportion. Um, but yet you have an entire loss of vehicle with SN8, 
and it's being, you know, heralded as as the next era of spaceflight. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, something's wrong here. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not dis dissing SpaceX by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just I'm just saying, why the double standard? You know, e either way, you're trying to get engineering data, and if if you got the if you got your data, and you got some, you know, and and you the the vehicle still comes back relatively unscathed or 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 you know you had some little issues and you didn't expect to get the vehicle back or you know and it does come back or you know some other scenario plays itself out um why you know why the dif why the difference why the difference where where SpaceX gets the pass and yet another agency or another company that's trying to do something rather interesting and rather innovative, um, they get criticized. Uh, that, that, I'm just putting that out there. Definitely some food for thought there. Yep. Well, there was something else that happened on the same day as SN8 while we're talking about it, and uh, that was related to Artemis. That is NASA's next lunar program. And... Uh, we know the rocket is SLS, and we know they're going to the moon. Now we know the 18 astronauts who are part of the Artemis program. Yeah, and two of them were up on the International Space Station of, at the time, um, both uh, Victor Glover and um, Kate Rubens. Uh, there are... Uh, a f so um, I, I, I extend to them also a congratu congratulations. Also, we learned, too, uh, just uh, about a week ago that Canada has also been invited to add a uh, crew member to the Artemis II mission. And, we'll be, and later we'll be adding an astronaut that will go ahead and, and make a, a landing attempt later on in the program. They will also be in charge of the robotics on board the, gate, the Lunar Gateway. And indeed, the, uh, the memo of uh, understanding indicates, too, that they are set to build Canada Arm 3 for, um, for Gateway. So... Uh, we have our 18 astronauts there. We'll um, try to go ahead and include all of them in the show notes. I'm not going to read them all here. Um, but con but that announcement, also the final um, meeting of the uh, National Space Council that occurred the same day, and um, right on the heels of that, um, administ NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein announced all 18 of the um, of the astronauts that were selected for uh, for Artemis um, and they uh, the, they also held held a press conference with five of the uh, the, the astronauts um, the person that really really stands out in my mind because everybody was 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 kind of wonder you know I was just kind of wondering um, as far as the introductions who was kind of like the John Glenn in, in, the, in the list there and who was able to go ahead and handle the questions the best. I'd have to say uh, Anne McLean really, really distinguished herself during the, the, the press conference. I thought she really, really handled all of the, the questions fairly well that were being thrown at her by, uh, by NASA PAO. 
And I thought NASA PAO also had a rather inventive way of ending the press conference with a bit of a tip of the hat to um, uh, to the uh, Mercury 7 um, uh, press conference. He asked who was, who, who was uh, going to be selected on the to be the uh, the astronaut crew on on uh, on the first landing attempt, and of course everybody rose their hands, all five. Um, so, uh, but all of that kind of got drowned out by SN8, which to me was 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 kind of a shame uh, because it was uh, that this was NASA trying to to go ahead and say, hey, we have you know. Because that was one of the one of the things the press was asking. What about training? What about the the crew selections? Blah blah blah. Well, now we have our eighteen astronauts that are going to the moon, basically, and um, that will be the first humans to return to the lunar surface since Apollo seventeen in December of nineteen seventy two. So uh, you know, and that also, but again, all of that got drowned out by SN eight. Um, you really didn't get a lot of airplay, sadly. Yeah, it's an amazing group of astronauts. You definitely need to check it out. And I should also uh, put another congratulations out there to Victor Glover, not only on now being on the space station, his first time into space, uh, being selected for Artemis, but is also the first official member sworn in as a member of the U.S. Space Force. He is the newest, as they're being called, Guardians. I want to correct you. That was Mark Hopkins. Oh, sorry, Mike Hopkins. Correct. Yes. So yeah, that was so. uh, yeah. Mark, Mike Hopkins was uh, also uh, he. It, they had a, an interesting little transfer ceremony there. He transferred uh, into the uh, the space force, um, and uh, uh, he is now a member of. He is now the latest guardian, if you will. The uh, uh, I believe that announcement, as far as how what they were going to call members of the Space Force, um, because the Army, soldiers, you know, uh, you have, um, you know, the Air Force, airmen, uh, Coast Guardsmen, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, what do you call the, the, the folks over at the Space Force? And uh, I believe it was the Vice President that announced um, they were going to be referred to as Guardians, and that, too, also comes from um, an Air Force, uh, you know, early on in, in, in the U.S. Air Force. It's one of the things, too, I have been explaining on Twitter since, um, oh, good Lord, since, since the, uh, the logo of the, uh, the Space Force came out. Um, to uh, everybody, I know this is going to break a lot of hearts, but um, everybody, put sh- you know, have to, you have to pull, turn on the impulse engines, because the delta shape that um, the Space Force uses in their insignia with the star in the middle actually harkens back to uh, an, an Air Force insignia that was used in relationship to space, and they've been using that since 1961. It has zip, zero, zilch, nothing to do with the, um, the Starfleet logo. Um, that uh, was used in Star Trek. Um, in fact, it predates Star Trek by five years. So I'm just going to throw that out, that little piece of information out there, because I'm 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 I, I'm a little um, tired of of seeing that on on Twitter. 
and seeing a lot of the heat that uh, the Space Force takes. I mean, they it just celebrated its um, one-year anniversary of being stood up, and a lot of people still don't really understand what what Space Force is all about um, or even what it, what it is going to be doing or what it's needed for. And no, they're not going to be... Um, sorry, Steve Carell, they're not going to be on the lunar surface at all or anything like that. They're mostly going to be flying consoles back here on Earth, making sure that uh, our satellites are safe and uh, uh, everything in, in um, low Earth orbit is secure and making sure that U.S. assets in low Earth orbit, whether they be uh, commercial or military in nature, are are indeed secure. So that is, that's really part of... Uh, what they're doing. Um, so, um, you know, just, just, just some food for thought as we, as we go on. Exactly. So, uh, we've got all that going on. Uh, and, uh, I should mention we did have, uh, another test flight as well. And that was Virgin Galactic. Mark, do you want to take that? Yeah, just a quick update. I've been following Virgin Galactic to see how they're going with their flight test program. And on December 12th, they had a problem and uh, it was a drop test. And they announced, uh, following the test flight, they announced this. During the test flight, the rocket motor did not fire due to the ignition sequence not completing. Following this event, pilots conducted a safe landing and returned to Spaceport America, New Mexico, as planned. Virgin Galactic's conducting post-flight analysis and so far can report that the onboard computer monitoring the propulsion system lost connection triggered a fail-safe scenario that intentionally halted ignition of the rocket motor. The system, like others on the spaceship, is designed so that it defaults to a safe state whenever power or communication with sensors in, is lost. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, they're looking at it. They had a problem. They're looking at it. Things w went well, considering the, the type problem they had at a critical phase of flight. And uh, we'll see. Sounds to me, Mark, like their systems uh, work. As far as their um, their their overrides, they know what they're doing to to make sure things are safe, and uh, their safety systems are are in place. Again, this is the uh, the VSS Unity, correct? This would have been the first uh, powered flight for that uh, spacecraft. I'll tell you the truth, I haven't kept up closely with their progression of testing. I know this was going to be their first flight out of. Uh, Excuse me, not in Mojave, but at Spaceport America, New Mexico. Right. Um, yeah, because if I remember, they were. Um, if, if I remember seeing on, on social media, the, the the folks over at Virgin Galactic were touting this is the first time we're actually going to space from New Mexico. So right. And I got to tell you, man, that's a pretty spaceship. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure Mr. Mike Moses would agree with you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for, for shiny, pretty uh, spacecraft, and that certainly is, is gorgeous. The fact that it flies, oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it, it is a, it, it is a, a, I have to agree with you there, Mark. Both the, um, uh, both the chase aircraft, well, the chase aircraft, both the carrier aircraft and the, uh, 
and Spaceship Two are just gorgeous vehicles, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing more from from Virgin Galactic and seeing more how they can how they're going to go ahead and 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 roll this this commercial spaceflight era out. I know NASA is looking to put astronauts on either uh, the Blue Origin spacecraft or this one to conduct suborbital missions and suborbital experimentation. And it may not be just astronauts either. It'll be it'll be actual experimenters that uh, will be performing the, the 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 stuff on their own. So if you're if you're working for NASA and you've got a suborbital um, experiment that you want to fly, hey, you know, you got your chance to go above the Kármán line with either one of these two vehicles. Well, funny that you had mentioned that. I left this out, but along with the two pilots on the uh, spacecraft, they had NASA payloads. Yep. And uh, that wasn't, of course, successful because that was payloads that were headed to microgravity and uh, next time. Yep, indeed. So I'm, um, um, but again, Mark, I'm with you, man. Those, those, those two, those two aircraft, and and those, and that spacecraft is just too gorgeous. And the important thing is that the engine did shut down, so there is a next time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yes, uh, we will. <laughs> it is a beautiful bird, and excited to see that thing uh, fly suborbital. So we move from private to public, and that is NASA. And, uh, well, we have the uh, NASA Authorization Bill of 2019-2020, uh, and it is, well, there's a few interesting things in it. If it does get passed, it would be part of the COVID-19 uh, relief bill that is currently making its way towards the president's desk as we record this where we do not know at this time if it will or will not be signed. And if it is not signed, whether it will be in the finalized version, but we still want to bring it up because regardless of whether it's signed or not, it says a lot, uh, I, I at least think, about how where NASA will likely be going or not going next. And I think the one that you and I were talking about before we started recording, Gene, and have been talking about for the last few days, mm -hmm. uh, involves the funding for Artemis and for SLS. Yeah, to uh, really, really recap, I'm not going to go into a lot of the particulars here because we just don't have the time. But um, the uh, I believe the the NASA request was about twenty five billion dollars. Um, they only received about twenty three in this bill, um, and I believe about twenty five percent of the. Uh, uh, human landing system uh, budget was also removed, so we had um, so so the human landing system is only getting seventy five percent of what they asked for. Um, I think you know Sawyer, you and I were postulating. We kind of figured that two thousand uh, two thousand twenty four was a notional date. It was something that Kathy Leaders said they're going to shoot for. Um, you just, you know, she was saying, well, you know, heck, you just can't throw up your air, your hands in the air and say, oh, well, we're not going to do this. She said, well, heck, we're at least we're going to try. Um, but uh, without that funding for the human landing system, 
going to uh, going to the moon. I think that kind of puts the nail in the in the coffin, if you will, for for twenty twenty four. For Artemis. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, my thought process after seeing the amount that they would actually be getting is probably 2028. And that's, I mean, that's always been the issue, especially as you transition between different administrations. But it's getting that consistent funding. For a project to be successful, you need to either keep it steady or obviously, preferably over time, increase the budget. When you drop it, there goes any chance you have of achieving a goal. Even if you keep it steady, you at least will keep it relatively on track for where they're at. But with no boost and cutting it by possibly cutting 25% of it, I mean, that's, yeah, that's cutting years, not just months off the project, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is one of the things, too, that uh, this was actually brought up, shoot, as early as last year, I believe, Um I remember Jim Bridenstine sitting in front of the, uh, I believe it was the uh, uh, Appropriations Committee, and they were trying to go ahead and exp- you know, get some answers from them as far as the human landing system itself and um, why all of a sudden did they go from uh, 2028 to 2024 and... Uh, Jim Bridenstine's explanation was always because of, uh, you know, because of political risk. The idea was to re- try to reduce political risk and and try to accelerate the programs because long term programs in NASA's history, uh, he cited, usually do not come to fruition. Either something happens where, you know, it, it just it, it just doesn't happen and and. He cited the, um, you know, the ill-fated Project Constellation, which we went over um, on this program when we first started out, and and, and its, you know, uh, its its demise, um, and the reasons for that. We we kind of went on about them early on in this program, but um, you look even further back to uh, to the you know SEI, the Space Exploration Initiative. Um, and what occurred there. So uh, the um, first uh, iteration of the space station, Space Station Freedom, a few other other NASA programs that went a little long, and they never really saw the light of day. And what Jim Bridenstine was trying to do is trying to, uh, and I believe the what the White House was trying to do, is to accelerate the program to try to make sure that uh, you know t- the short-term programs kind of stay on track, and that was his reasoning to to really reduce political risk. It had nothing to do with you know in his eyes anyway with with you know the current administration trying to get a a feather in their cap or or use it for some sort of political game, which is what I've heard seen out there. Of course, you know if it were to happen, indeed. The administration, had it been reelected, would have you know received some sort of political you know clout from it. But the same way Richard Nixon kind of got some little bit of a popularity bump out of Apollo Eleven, even though everybody knew that he was not responsible for it. Um, but I, I don't think everybody bought that on the Appropriations Committee. 
I think everybody kind of was saying, hey, you know, what's the rush? Let's, you know, kind of think this out. I don't think a lot of people on the appropriation committee really bought into the idea of using commercial vehicles for all of this. Um, and I still think the, I, th I still think they think the jury's still out, even though I thought that the COTS program kind of really, really cemented that template and said, hey, it works. And I think also commercial crew, even though it was 37 months late, um, because, you know, space is hard, and I promised I'd never use that cliche, but there it is. Um, you know, it, it also went through its growing pains, but it 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 accomplished the mission in in the end. And I think, you know, the, the human landing system will probably go the same way. It's going to have its growing pains. All three of these companies are, are, are going to have their, their issues, their pratfalls, and so on. SN8 is part of that. Um, you know, the other two companies, Dianetics and the, the national team, which is a consortium of three firms, um, they they too are are gonna have have their their growing pains as well during this this process, but I, I I honestly think that the Congress or members of Congress just don't buy it, and and I'm not I'm not too sure how to make them see it. I don't really think there is a way to see it other than, you know, everyone's promising 2024. You hear 2024. What I wonder is, what's the reaction going to be in 2024 if we get there and we're not on the moon at that point? Um, don't know. I mean, you know, is there are there going to be re repercussions? Well, you know, w with all due respect, you know, they might try to, you know, pin that on NASA and then turn to the the politicos that are saying, "See NASA, you can't do it." Um, I will turn to them and say, "Well, kind of look in the mirror." You know, if you don't go ahead and, and give the agency the support it needs, then, um, you know, that's that's on you. That That's the way I would handle it. I mean, you know, go look in the mirror. If you want to blame somebody, look, you know, look at yourselves. And again, part of it is going to be that, uh, you know, we have the administration change uh, in 2021. In 2024, there is a chance that there may as well be a new incoming administration, or it may be the same one. So, and that's the hard part with the NASA budget being so dependent upon politics is with, you know, who the president is changing. Uh, I think 2024 and the budget may have been slightly different if there wasn't so much political turnover. Well, I mean, that's just the nature of our system. There's always going right. to be that. That's always going to be be the case. And I think that too, that's what Jim Bridenstine was trying to protect the agency from, was that kind of interference. Um, I mean, y you can't do it all the time, but I, I will say this much: uh, if if, and I, I think I know where you're going here. Is Artemis in any danger of going down the same route? as you know sei or constellation i will say this much um and and again this is just me me talking i think there's too many agree international agreements at this time 
We have one with Canada. We have one with JAXA. We have one with uh, um, with the Europeans. There are, you know, there's just way too much momentum from an international agreement standpoint on Artemis, and it it uh, you know Constellation didn't have that momentum. Um, SEI sure as heck didn't have that momentum. It didn't get beyond the sticker shock stage. Um, so I'm I, I'm a little bit more confident in Artemis staying the course than I was with Constellation and sure as heck with SEI way back in the day. Um, I did. I know something you and I have talked about is at this point is Artemis too big to fail and it's just going to eventually have to launch because of how much we've put into it. I personally, I think we're at that point now. Um, there, I mean, SLS is, is almost along. Um, we, you know, did the, uh, the core stage, uh, wet dress rehearsal, um, back on, you know, this past Sunday on December 20th. Um, Things kind of went well. Uh, there was uh, some glitches toward the end, um, but I think you know they're gonna they're gonna sort that all out. Um, so SLS is coming along. Yeah, it's behind it's behind the eight ball. Yeah, you know all all of the other stuff, but we have the s the 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 launch vehicle for Artemis One ready, almost ready in the pipeline. We've got Ar- the uh, Artemis II launch vehicle in the pipeline, and yes, the Artemis III launch vehicle in the pipeline. So, and we are learning how to build them better and faster, and so on. So, um, as we get better and better at it, I'm sure you know the cost will will probably come down. Um, but there's also the concern, if you think back to the Apollo days, we built vehicles all the way through Apollo 20, and then after 17 said, ah, forget it, we're done. Well, there were some underlying reasons for that, and those are I, – I, I'm not going to get into all of them here because we'll be here all night. But um, there were, again, some – you know, we had had the Vietnam War going on. We and but but in all honesty, I think people and I think I think people just lost their interest. And unfortunately, at the time, um, NASA made looking you know going to the moon, going to another world, um, kind of look looking like it was a trip to uh, to Pittsburgh. Um, you know, well, right now our Vietnam War, I think, is the COVID nineteen pandemic. We still have all of that going on, and on top of that, again, SpaceX right now is kind of doing the same thing, and everyone got their interest up in SpaceX. I, I'll bet you money, the same exact thing is going to happen after, say, Artemis, you know, two or three. It's going to be like, all right, we got it. We went once or twice. It's good. I'm worried we're literally setting ourselves up in the exact same scenario that we did for the Apollo program in terms of budget, in terms of political climate, in terms of world climate. Yeah. I'll I'll challenge you just with this. Um, the one thing that um, – that we will have up there in the not too distant future are the parts for the lunar gateway that will be be put together. Gateway, as you know, some members of the audience may know, 
is going to be essentially an orbital outpost um, in and around the moon. Its orbit can shift. It can basically do a lot for you when you have people there and when you don't have people there. So um, it will essentially be a staging point um, in lunar orbit where you can transition from one orbit to another to fit the mission parameters and to fit uh the, uh, the the landing site and so on and you can literally have um, a crew of you know two other astronauts on board gateway and you know doing robotic experiments somewhere else on the moon while your your crew is on the also on the moon doing um, their thing and doing their their geological studies and and trying to see too if if you have uh, if, if the resources on the moon can go ahead and support um, a base, per, a permanent ba base of operations, or even um, a possible Mars shot. And that, that is basically really, really what Artemis is all about, trying to see if you can use resources on the moon to, to reach Mars. And also I think the, the way we're going about the, the lunar assault is essentially a dress rehearsal for the way we're going to do Mars. I do see an orbital facility like Gateway in Mars orbit eventually and doing the same kind of thing that we, we will be doing with, with Artemis. So I have to kind of challenge you there a little bit, um, on, uh, on, on the fact that, uh, you know, yeah, I know that we have our own war going on, and and it's due to an unseen enemy, and we have our, you know, you know, you're talking to somebody that that's also facing, you know, some financial crunches as as a result of of all of this and what's been going on. Um, so you know, I I, I feel it. Um, I'm among those, those that is, is kind of waiting to see what this budget looks like because, you know, my future kind of is, is hinging to, uh, on it as well. But um, it, it, to, to challenge you a little bit, I, 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 don't, I don't see that kind of I – don't, I don't see that interfering at all with Artemis. I think, too, NASA's proven that you can still operate uh, spacecraft and so on – and do really daring missions, even in the these incredible, strange environments that that we're finding ourselves in, due to to due to the pandemic. So we've kind of learned to work around it, and and um, I don't think it impinges. I don't think NASA's and really, really going to hurt as far as uh, as far as the pandemic. Do I think? Um, you know, from a budgetary standpoint, it's going to hurt. Yeah, because I think you know it. It, it I, I don't think it's going to be um, dream stopped, though. I think it's going to be dream postponed and or dream deferred. But um, uh, to to answer your question, do I think that um, uh, Artemis is going to go the way of SEI or? Um, or constellation, I don't think so. Not this time, because there's just way too much momentum behind it at this point. Um, I think Jim Bridenstine has seen to that, and I kind of asked um, this of two individuals uh, that this audience knows. Uh, one 
um, was uh, Charlie Bolin um, at a at an event, and I'll have to see if I can find the sound clip. Um, but he essentially echoed my thought in that he didn't think that uh, um, he thought we were on this road for for quite some time, or felt that he we were on this road for quite some time, and and really don't think that. Um, Really didn't think that the, the the change of administration was going to impact uh, the momentum behind Artemis all that much, um, and uh, Doctor uh, Mary, Mary Ellen Dittmar also had the same kind of thought, where she felt that uh, there was probably enough momentum behind Artemis at this point in time that she really did not see. Uh, the change of administration as a threat to the program. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and you'll, we'll, we're going to run that interview in its entirety. It was done back in August, but I think still, still is applicable um, today. Um, and we'll have that, we'll be efforting that for you forthwith. I could go so much more into this, but I think we'll leave the rest of that part to the viewers and their opinions. And you can always email us mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. I think the best way to reach us is to tweet at any of us. You can tweet at Talking Space or any of us individually and keep this conversation going because there's a lot to it. But there's another important thing if this budget gets passed that needs to be addressed, and that involves the Arecibo uh, radio telescope, which... We talked about last time, uh, unfortunately, after the last episode was recorded, we did have to add the addendum, and it was in there that the, there was the official collapse. But now there's an inquiry. Well, yeah, the uh, uh, in this budget uh, overall, uh, the Congress has basically asked the uh, NSF, the National Science Foundation, um, it's actually given it 60 days to hand them a report as to, you know, one, what occurred at Arecibo to cause the collapse overall and the loss of the, uh, of the dish and the loss of the transmitter at, um, in Puerto Rico. That's one. Two, uh, to submit to them a, uh, cleanup plan on how they're going to go ahead and, and clean up the, uh, uh, the the debris field that's left over from uh, the uh, 305 uh, foot telescope and the uh, subsequent transmitter and how they're going to do it in an environmentally responsible way. Um, also, what the current disposition is of the remaining observatories are at Arecibo and what their plan is uh, to continue those facilities. Um, and then finally, uh, the, uh, the Congress has asked the NSF to put together an estimate of what it may cost should a decision be made to replace the um, 305 uh, meter dish at Arecibo, uh, which to me seems like Congress might be interested in replacing 
the facility and in replacing the the uh, the collapsed transmitter and dish out there. Um, I know I've been sitting in uh, with into some of the conversations. Um, I know the uh, the science NASA advisory committee met a while back ago, and uh, they presented some uh, some data. I know uh, uh, Dr. Amy Manser. Uh, gave a rather impassioned talk about Arecibo and how important it is not only to uh, uh, to science but also to the people of Puerto Rico. And, I mean, it's on the National Hist- Register of Historic Sites um, and how it's really, really been inspiring STEM in Puerto Rico for a very, very long time. Um, and the, the going wisdom uh, from... The science uh, folks, including uh, Dr. Thomas Zerbuchen, has been, uh, well, we're, we're going to see what comes out of the decadal survey and what and follow the directive there and see what happens um, if, if, there are, uh, if, if there are directives to go ahead and replace uh, the Arecibo Radio Observatory. Um, so it sounds to me like like Congress itself may not be waiting for the decadal survey. They may want to say, hey, you know, how much is it going to cost to go ahead and replace this thing? I think, too, somebody is whispering in a few congressional ears that, you know, hey, China's got the, the their 500-meter telescope um, out there, uh, their radio telescope, their answer to Arecibo. And it's kind of embarrassing that we let this, this national treasure you know, fail and, and collapse the way it did. Uh, so we might want to go ahead and, and try to see what we can do to go ahead and replace this thing. Um, so let's find out how much this thing cost. And I believe the, the, the China um, uh, radio telescope, the 500 um, foot, the 500 meter dish out there that cost, I believe in the neighborhood and somebody, don't quote me on this one, but I believe it was somewhere in the realm of about $188 million. So my bet is Arecibo might cost about that much, if not more. Um, but we'll wait to see the report in six, in in the 60-day time period. I'm sure it's going to be made public once um, NSF puts that out there. Uh, we will follow up on it and make sure that uh, you know we fill in our listeners on what that report's going to look like and what it said. So I'm looking forward to hearing, um, to reading what the NSF uh, has to has to say about all all of this. But again, this is this is kind of a a scientific black eye, if you will, that we actually allowed this to to happen in in the first place. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to read that report, especially in only 60 days to try and figure out what happened. And it'll also be interesting to see the reaction. I know I wish Kat was here to talk more about the policy side, but we talked about this last episode of a lot of this is political issue as well. Right. So are they going to come back and say, well, this is partly on you? 
So there's a lot of uh, interest that's going to be when this report, if this report does come out. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, exactly. I was thinking the same thing, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, when it comes down to uh, to asking, you know, gee, what the devil happened? Well, you know, Congress, look in the mirror. Um, the, the, this facility has been woefully underfunded for a very long time. NSF has been trying to shut the darn thing down um, for, for at least two decades. I believe since about 2006, they've been trying to shut Arecibo down. Um, but, um, and, you know, then this happened and, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what, uh, what folks are, are thinking about, um, over at, uh, NSF about all of this. I'm probably not making any friends over at the National Science Foundation right now, but, um, the the whole idea really is is what you know really you know why the devil did we allow this to happen to begin with that's one and and two um if we go ahead and rebuild the facility what we what maintenance and what 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 do we have to follow to make sure that something like this never happens again exactly uh, so that'll be very interesting to see. Indeed. Now, uh, <laughs> we don't have much time left, but we do want to at least acknowledge a very important passing. And Mark, I'll let you do the honors and we will save. I know you have some really interesting stories and we will definitely save those for an upcoming episode. But Mark, it's all you. So I believe it was the day after, but on December 7th, General Chuck Yeager, the man who broke the speed of sound for the first time passed away and i found out about it through twitter and his twitter account is uh jan is in general but g-e-n chuck yeager and and this was from victoria uh yeager and and she said it's with profound sorrow i must tell you that my life love general chuck yeager passed just before 9 p.m eastern time an incredible life well-lived, America's greatest pilot, a legacy of strength, adventure, and patriotism will be remembered forever. There was a picture that showed uh, St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, and uh, the Pearly Gates have just had a hole blasted through them by apparently a aircraft and afterburner, and St. Peter says that would be Chuck Yeager. And... I reflect on a lot of things that I'd like to take more time to talk about, but I think instead I'll just mention that the plans that I have seen so far is that there will be a memorial January 15th in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, the intended plan, and this is from Victoria Yeager, is that it will be open to the public and live-streamed, and we'll provide some more information as we uh, as we get to look into it. And I'd like to talk about General Chuck Yeager from things that I've read in a book, which was an autobiography that I've mentioned before on the show. And the name of the book is Yeager, an autobiography by General Chuck Yeager and Leo Janos. Unfortunately, it's out of print, but it's still available as a used book. Mine's a paperback that's 34 years old with yellowed pages with lots of sticky notes. And... If you can find a, a, a copy of it, I think you'll find it a really, really surprising read because Chuck Yeager was so much more than the man who broke the speed of sound. He was uh, 
a kid growing up in rural West Virginia. He was a pilot in World War II, and he was an incredible test pilot and part of a, an era of aviation in America that has so many stories. And, in fact, at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, so many uh, roads named after test pilots that didn't make it, that bought the farm. So we'll talk more about this. And um, like I said, it was it was a sad thing. And for me, because uh, his physical appearance reminded me of a high school friend's father who was probably about the same age. Uh, Chuck Egger was born about a week and a half before my father was, who died some 20 years ago. But, you know, there's just so many things, and the fact that he was part of that World War II generation, and um, it's sad that so many are gone and there are so few left. But we'll talk about it more, and I think you'll appreciate some of the fun things, some of the eye-openers that uh, that I hope I can bring to you later. I'm really looking forward to those insights, Marcus. I... I have somewhere the hardcover version of that book. Um, I know, I know the one, and in, in, in my case, there's just way too many highlighter marks with some just you know funny or insightful quotes uh, marked up in it. Because um, back then, when when the book was first released, I I had a very very, and I still sometimes have a very very bad habit of highlighting a lot of. A lot of stuff in 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 those things, and I have to go back and and reread it because I hadn't read it since since its release. But um, there are just so many incredible stories of of uh, of the early from the early days of av- aviation as far as uh, as far as that that period of time is concerned. A lot of things that happened that uh, today would never happen in in a billion years um it was just a different time and uh, a, a different way of looking at things and, and just you know i mean even even the fact that the man uh flew the the bell x1 with you know uh, a couple of busted ribs and after a horse threw him and and uh and was able to go ahead and and test the sound barriers test the sound barrier break it all you know, being quite you know banged up. I mean, they he actually had to use a, a broomstick of some sort to go ahead and and latch the hatch of the uh, of the aircraft, if I'm not mistaken, um, to uh, to make sure that uh, he was in he could go ahead and uh, uh, you know just make sure that that thing was locked for flight. Um, but uh, uh, we'll never see uh, uh, Chuck Yeager's like again in in flight. I mean, he was really, really a true pioneer. And I, I found out, Mark, the way you did, because I saw that fly by on Twitter. And, uh, you know, as soon as I saw it, I, I obviously RT'd it, but my heart broke. Um, you know, I, I thought back, an incredible man... An incredible life, and he lived life well, and and I guess ultimately 
let that be said of all of us if that's if that's an epitaph form Uh, I think that's the perfect place to end this episode. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Jim McCulka. Uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy Kwanzaa or whatever your Happy Hanukkah. I know that period is is coming on, but um, a little late late for that. But uh, Happy belated Hanukkah and or Happy whatever you're celebrating th- this this time of year. And uh, we'll we'll see you around the other side in uh, 2021. And thank you for joining us as well, Mark Ratterman. See you next time and uh, go 2021. Yes, we are looking forward to that new year. Thank you for joining us here for our abbreviated but still, I think, informative 2020 season. We will see you next year. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. (laughs) 